some fell right down that rabbit hole so reality is questionable try but you just can't let it go these two right here put on the show it's paranormal overload with southern hospitality Haunted murder may have tip while discussing immortality. Locations with a dark past, history that comes to life. Hillbillies with a knack for everything that goes bump at night. Overthinking if you by yourself, these two will have you turning on the lights. Mixing in a little comedy to make sure it all fits in just right. Hey, welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. Now here's your hosts, Jerry and Tracy Paul, Heather Dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 289 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. So, obviously last week we didn't put out a regular episode. We played a uh, Patreon uh, bonus from uh, a couple years ago. As you can probably tell, we uh, are still not feeling better. Obviously, it's uh, a battle with COVID that we've been kind of fighting. And for me, it's really taking a toll on my... uh, Breathing, I should say. Yeah. You can probably tell right now I'm having a hard time just uh, getting through a lot of it. So, you know, we've tried taking our medicine. We've both been to the hospital. And Tracy seems to be doing a little better than I am. Yeah. And uh, but and I seem to be doing better as, in other ways, but not as much in my breathing. So I have trouble, you know, talking if I'm sitting up for long periods of time or walking up and down the steps, so that's kind of a struggle. So, unfortunately, it's caused us to miss some episodes that we normally wouldn't have missed, but that's, you know, we got to take care of ourselves, and we know you guys understand. It's killing me not to do it, because it's just that's something I've taken a lot of pride in, is never missing episodes. Yeah. So. But mm-hmm. with that being said, I'm struggling tonight, so we having to, we're going to pull out another Patreon bonus out from uh, June of 2019. This is actually a really good episode. I think you guys are going to really like it. If you haven't heard it, most of you who aren't Patreon subscribers haven't heard this, but it's a fascinating story. It's actually two stories on this one, and Kristen sits in on the first half of one of them. Yeah. So we just want to thank you guys for being understanding, and like Jerry said, we hate to miss this because we feel like we're doing a disjustice almost, and, you know, it's just something that we... Like you said, it takes pride in doing, but this shit has kicked our ass. I'm just saying it just like it is. So Yeah, we've been battling it. I've been battling it for oh, at least a week and a half now. Yeah, yeah. So you got to get my honey bunny better. And I can't stand to see him this sick. But um, you guys, we want to thank you all for reaching out and um, wishing us well wishes and all that good stuff and keep the prayers coming. And we'll try to get done and get better as soon as we can so we can get back on track. Uh, even though this is a, a bonus that we're going to play, I don't want to disregard our um, uh, obligations. So we do want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thanks to all you men, women, and service animals. And we want to make sure the people know that if you're struggling, um might not be the best time to give us a call at the moment because <laughs> of the medicine and stuff we're under and, and all that. But we want people to know that the group is there for you. And if you need to talk to somebody, please reach out. And talk to uh, to somebody in the group, whether it be um, 
somebody you've never talked to before, maybe you've got a friend or a family member, or if you want to reach out to the suicide hotline, which is 1-800-273-8255. You can also text them at 741-741. And like you said, we'll have some people out here ready to reach out to you. I do want to say a big congratulations to Natasha and Josh on their marriage. It was very beautiful. Natasha, you were so beautiful as always, and we wish you nothing but many, many years of happiness. Yes, absolutely. And as we record this, we have many great friends that are Cincinnati Bengal fans. And yes, who day? That is our, um, it's not my team, I'm an I'm a Indianapolis Colts fan, but around here that is the team. We're within an hour of Cincinnati, so it's kind of, uh, kind of exciting to have a team going to the Super Bowl. Yeah, congratulations Bengals. So, all right, without further ado, here's this week's story. Hey guys, welcome to June's edition of your Patreon episode, Cool Story Tonight. Of course, Tracy is here with me. Hello, everybody. And we have Tracy's mini-me, Kristen, sitting in with us. First time she's sat in on uh, the all three of us since, like, what, episode like 15 or 16 with the Amityville. Um, actually, I, yeah, you're right. And then the Dybbuk box. Yeah, because but she was in Flor- uh, Vegas at that time, so it was just me and you on that mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, hello, guys. Good to... Be back on the show. I keep telling everybody that if Tracy's not here one day, I'm just going to slide you in and not say anything, and they probably no one will wouldn't ever know, know the difference. <laughs> no, they won't. Same laugh, same voice, everything. So I thought we would do it's a it's a haunting type story, but it's also a little true crime mixed in with it. Ooh, my favorite. So this is going to be a, a really cool story. Some of you may have heard a little bit of this one. Because uh, there's like a lot of memes and stuff that float around that occasionally we'll have this one. Memes. Memes. <laughs> but it, they'll have this one on occasion. But this one's actually got all the details. So, you know, we did a story back when I think it might have been the second or third story that we ever did back in the Ricky and I days. And it was about the Greenbrier ghost in West Virginia. I remember that one. It is the... First time that a spirit came back from the dead and the testimony was allowed in court to actually convict the murderer. Insanity. And this story kind of goes along that lines. So it's years later, but you're going to see how it all kind of fits together in a similar style case. So are we ready? Yes. We are ready. So basically, whether you believe in paranormal or not, the story of Teresita Bossa is certainly an intriguing one. So, did Bossa come back from the dead and enter another person's body to reveal who killed her? Well, did she? I don't know. I wouldn't want someone named Bossa up in my body. Well, <laughs> be Bossa and you're around all the time. Be Bossa, so Bossa. <laughs> Kill Bossa. Hey, I made Kill one up. <laughs> we changed straight straight from uh, Spanish to Polish in a heartbeat. <laughs> Anyways, before this turns into a true sausage fest. Ew. Sausage. By, by all accounts, this is what happened. So Bossa was born in the Philippines in 1929 and lived a very privileged life. She was the sole child of a very successful lawyer and his wife. After graduating from Assumption College in Manila, Bossa came to the United States where she received a master's degree in music from Indiana University and then went on to study inhalation therapy. What the heck What's is that? that? I have no idea. Inhalation? Like breathing? I would I would think. Inhaling? Oh, like like breathing, meditating maybe? Like I don't know. I mean she she worked in a hospital, so my guess is it's definitely medically related. 
Oh, so she wasn't installing installation. It's inhalation. inhalation. Oh, inhalation. <laughs> oh, so I think we can safely say no, she was not installing An installation. installation specialist. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually, Basso settled down in Chicago. She became a respiratory therapist at Edgewater Hospital. She was known to be very reserved and a polite woman who was exceptionally dedicated to her job, where she took a lot of pride in providing the best care for the patients. So as well as being a hard worker in her career, she also attended Loyola University, where she was preparing a doctor's thesis on music. Hmm. She spent what little free time she had giving piano lessons and starting writing her own book. That's good. Sounds like my kind of gal. She wasn't a drinker and led a very routine and quiet life. Nerd. So this is where it all comes around. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It is weird by today's standards. Okay. So around 7.30 on the 21st of February, 1977, Rita Loeb, who was a friend from the hospital, she telephoned Bassa, and the two talked for about a half an hour. So Bassa mentioned that she had a male friend coming over, but didn't say who it was. Almost an hour later, two neighbors of Bassa smelled smoke. They informed the janitor. And he told, you know, all the other residents, they called the fire department. And on this very cold evening in February 1977, the sound of the fire engine could literally be heard speeding towards the apartment block on North Pine Grove Avenue. Now, as they extinguished the fire in the apartment number 15B, they were more than horrified to find a nude body hiding under a smoldering mattress. They were even more aghast to discover that the body had a butcher knife embedded in the middle of the chest. Oh, jeez! The nude person had a yes. one in their nude chest? Yes. Ew. That, that hurt. <laughs> the body was soon identified as Teresita Bassa. Oh, she died? Oh, she was dead? Typically, when they stab you... Well, I thought she was just hiding under the mattress. You don't want the thing in her chest. Yeah, typically, when they stab you and put you underneath the flaming mattress, you don't normally escape from that, but... Why why do we both think the same thing? (laughs) 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 We don't. So, to all appearances, it was a rape murder with uh, Boss's clothing actually being folded neatly beside her nude body. However... Now they're just being an asshole. However, a medical examination determined that Bassa had not been raped. Her body was flown back to Negros Island, which is in the Philippines, for her burial. Detective Joseph Statula and his partner, Lee R. Eplin, were assigned to the case. Now, over the forthcoming weeks, they interviewed friends and acquaintances of Bassa so they could determine what kind of person she really was. In the burnt apartment, they discovered a mysterious note that was written by Bassa, which read, Get tickets for A.S. They were not sure what that meant, and they really didn't have any luck covering who A.S. could have been, and eventually the case rolled to a standstill. Hmm. So, however, in August, police in Evanston contacted Detective Statula and queried him about an Allen Showery. He was a technician at Edgewater Hospital. Now, Evanston police referred to Detective Statula to Dr. Juan Chua. And it, was, and it was here that this case takes a very peculiar turn. You see, Dr. John Chua was a surgical assistant at Franklin Boulevard Community Hospital. And according to him, his wife, Remy Chua, 
was possessed by Teresita Bassa. Oh. So he explained to these officers that his wife had sporadically gone into comatose state, and she would speak in the voice of another woman. At one point during these trances, Mrs. Chua blurted out, I am Teresita Bassa. Oh my gosh. I look free. (laughs) Afterwards, while speaking in Tagalog, Miss Chua claimed that she had been stabbed to death by Alan Showery. Oh, dude. She, like, ratted him out big time. Dr. Chua said he asked the voice why she had admitted it, or had admitted Showery to the home to which she said he was a friend. When Miss Chua snapped out of the trance about an hour and a half later, she had no recollection of what she had just said to her husband. So initially, Dr. Chua and Ms. Chua, they were apprehensive about contacting uh, uh, the police department out of fear that they would pretty much think they were just stupid. Well, yeah. I mean, who's going to believe that? Right. So they went ahead and, and said they didn't care. They threw caution to the wind. And when the voice of Bossa returned several times, they finally decided, we need to make a phone call. And that's what they did. Police initially weren't convinced, as you can imagine. So... Miss Chua was a Philippine native herself and had briefly worked at the same hospital as Bassa and Showery. So while Miss Chua had met Bassa during an, an orientation session, the two worked different shifts. However, when Dr. Chua told police that the voice of Casa had claimed that Showery had also stolen jewelry from the apartment, now this was something that even the police didn't know about. Ooh. According to the voice of Bassa, Showery had given some of his jewelry to his common-law wife. And after getting Showery's address, police detective Statula and Detective Eplin went to his apartment on the 11th of August. Now, Showery confessed that he knew Bassa, but denied ever visiting her apartment. Mm -hmm. Dirty dog. Shortly afterwards, he changed the story and claimed he had gone to her apartment to fix her TV, but then he claimed that he had left afterwards because he didn't have all the tools he needed, and he went back to his apartment to take a screwdriver. How are you not going to have a screwdriver? That's what I'm thinking. That's like the main tool for any job. That's what the man said. What igmo. So while he's at the apartment, the two detectives notice that Shari's uh, common-in-law wife, Yanka Kamluk, <laughs> Jesus, she was wearing a pearl cocktail ring, which was eerily similar to the one described as stolen by the voice of Bassa. They soon discovered other pieces of jewelry, which would be identified as belonging to Bassa by her family. And that's another thing. When she was in this possessed state, she not only said that he was there and he took the jewelry, she even said that members of her family could identify this jewelry because some of this jewelry was given to her by her mom, which was bought by her dad for her mom. Mm-hmm. So they were very distinct yeah. pieces of jewelry. So after presented with all this evidence, Shari confessed to the murder of Bassa. In his confession, he declared that he had gone to Bassa's apartment to rob her so that he could pay his rent. He said that all he got was 30 bucks and a handful of jewelry. During his trial, which was sensationally dubbed the voice from the grave trial, Shari would claim that he was just kidding when he made the confession. Because that's what you do. Psych. I, uh, I'm just kidding. Can't okay. tell you how many times I've seen comedians on TV and they always make murder confessions. Oh, my God. It gets them every time. How ridiculous. So during his trial, Prosecutor 
Thomas Organ roared. Oh my God. He well, roared? He did. Organ, organ he roared? The organ roared. Oh, that's his name? No, the organ's his name. Let me just put that. Thomas Organ said aloud. Well, oh, he roared. His name's not Organ Roared. Organ <laughs> Roared. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Well, Alan Showery, you weren't kidding when you plunged the knife into Teresita Bassa's chest. Oh, dude. Ooh, snap. Burnt. Told him. During Showery's trial, his defense lawyer, William Swano, suggested that Miss Chua faked the trances because she had been fired from the hospital. That's what you do. You get fired from a hospital and you try to pin a murder on somebody else. Those two go hand in hand. Oh, she was faking it? No, that's what he That's what the, the defense, defense attorney, attorney was trying to say. Oh, okay. Because they were really reaching. Never to my knowledge has a man been arrested because of a vision. The first trial was declared a mistrial when the jury met a deadlock. A new hearing was scheduled for February of 1979. So now the guy's back in his jail, and Showerly seemingly had a change of heart and decided to plead guilty to the murder of Bassa, as well as robbery and arson. So many people speculated that the spirit of Bassa visited Showery in his cell. Most likely, however, his defense lawyer suggested that he change his plea to receive a more lenient sentence and receive a lenient sentence, he certainly did. Shari was sentenced to 14 years in prison for the murder and current term of 4 to 12 years on the armed robbery and arson charges. That's it. Yeah, that's nothing. Shari was paroled from Stateville Correctional Center in July of 1983 after serving just under five years. (gasps) To this day... That's horrible. I'm not quite sure whether I believe how the information was obtained, said Detective Statula. Nonetheless, everything is completely true. So over the forthcoming years, many people have tried to explain these seemingly paranormal trances. Some suggested that Showery had complained about Mrs. Chua's work quality, thus leading to her being fired from the hospital. In fact, her psychic symptoms allegedly started shortly after her termination. Could she have heard Showery speaking about this involvement in the murder? Well, it's possible, I guess. Whether or not a person believes the claims that Miss Remy Chua was possessed by the spirit of Teresita Bassa. The clues have given led to the arrest and conviction of her killer. To this day, the murder and ensuing mystery is arguably one of the most bizarre murder cases in Chicago history. Thoughts? Well, I think what the question we all are wondering is, is why did he fold the clothes? You know, I don't know. That is very odd that you're going to take the time to fold the clothes and then put a mattress over top of somebody and light the mattress on fire. Yes. And how did the clothes stay folded while they were on fire? I don't think the clothes were on fire. It was the mattress that was on fire. But wasn't the mattress on the clothes? No, I think the clothes were beside her body. Okay, but it's still going to reach the clothes and catch on fire. I'm going to assume it didn't in this case, just based on the fact that they mentioned the clothes were neatly folded. And not flaming. I cannot believe he only got five yeah, years. That, makes me that is unheard of. If he needed money to pay his rent, why did he give the jewelry to his girlfriend? Why wouldn't he have sold it or pawned it? Yeah, why? Maybe it just wasn't worth anything. What a big I mean, you, you dummy. You always hear of, like, you know, criminal acts gone bad. Somebody goes to rob somebody and they end up getting, like, five bucks and pack cigarettes or something. You know, and it's just a waste of time. But yeah, and a waste of life. Deep, I think they think that they're going to get more than what they get, and 
They don't, because they're stupid. Yeah. Anyways, that's that story. I don't like him. I don't like him either. Well, it's not up for you to like him. He's well, probably dead. Good. Find him and jump him. <laughs> All right. On to the next one. So, unfortunately, Kristen has stuff to do, so she won't join us for the rest of the story. So, say goodbye. Goodbye, friends. Okay, so Kristen's out of the room. Now we can have some fun with a real story. (laughs) I enjoy having her sit in. She's never home when we do this, though. Yeah, yeah, she's never. She's never what? Home. Oh, okay. I just thought you were just leaving me in limbo. She's never. I was going to leave hang. Okay, this next story I almost did for the regular episode. And I, I, I did all the research on this like two weeks ago. And then I just decided to hold off because I found some other stories I liked. And then I thought, well, this would be a good story to add onto this show, the bonus episode. So here we go. All right, let's do it to it. You know, we've done a bunch of uh, stories on like haunted forest and stuff like that. This yeah. one kind of goes in that same category. This one is in a little place in uh, in West Suffolk, which is in uh, obviously in England, and this place has everything. I mean, it runs the full gamut of unexplained. It's got just like the other ones. So we'll jump into it a little bit. It's called Clappin Woods, and it sits on top of a hill in Rolling Sussex Downs, and it's like a looks like a big giant bunch of broccoli right there. Oh, if you just huh. look at it from <laughs> from the area. But it's got all kinds of ancient folklore here. UFO sightings, animal disappearances, rumors of satanic rituals. I think it's fair to say that it's an area of high strangeness, if nothing else. So, at first, I thought that the most of the unusual um, activity here was reasonably modern. But it turns out that this goes back at least to the 1960s. There was a controversial book written called High Strangeness, and a young lady by the name of uh, Laura Knight Jadick, she claims that there are strange lights and high strangeness in this area goes all the way back hundreds of years, and even reports that someone saw a moon-sized light descending into the woods that left a smell of burning Mm -hmm. in the woods. I think this is incredible. I mean, let me run this past you again. A moon-sized light. That's huge. huge. So did they mean something that looked like the size of the moon fell down, or was this actually the size of the moon? It's not, not really clear. So it's things like this, though, that can be just utterly maddening. Yeah. You're trying to figure this stuff out. So according to an article on Wikipedia, there's some early photographs of the area which show a large crater in the woods. Nobody knows really what caused it, although one theory, and it's probably the most likely, is that it was a wartime bomb. Oh, gosh. So that's possible, I guess. Or it could even have something to do with the local brickworks uh, that's situated right down the hill, which have been in the area for the past couple of hundred years. The crater may have been formed by them digging out soil for the works. That would make sense. Yeah. Most of the modern UFO sightings seem to have began in the late 1960s, though, like we were saying before. In the summer of 1967, Paul Glover, who was a member of the British Phenomenon Research Group, was just kind of walking along the downs. He was towards the woods. It was one beautiful starlit night, so no big issues. It was right around 10 o'clock. 
He and uh, the person he was walking with noticed a boomerang-shaped dark object moving quickly towards them. So he kind of noticed that as it was coming, that stars were disappearing. Like oh, like it was wiping them out, or yeah, well, it up, yeah, like like because they were passing, mm-hmm. you know, in front of them where you couldn't see the stars anymore. So it's oh, obvious there you. was yeah. yeah, it's obvious there was something there. He said it retained its shape the whole time, and it seemed to be on a definite course. And some people seem to think that maybe it was an owl. An their, owl? Well, their wingspans can be pretty big. So that's what some people think it might have been. A few minutes later, though, they saw two bright lights in the sky. They said that one of the lights released a smaller object, which traveled to the second light and seemed to enter it. An hour later, they saw two yellow lights descending into the woods, followed very soon by two more and then a final pair. And you know, in a lot of these UFO stories we've done, they, they have that story of all these lights That'll come out, and then they'll usually all gather together. and So that fits in with a lot of these other uh, stories we've talked about on there. Now, here we are in 1967 again in the nearby village of Russington. There were two schoolboys, Toyn Newton and John Arnold, and they were playing around with a Ouija board, which they said spelled out to them that Clapton Wood was a base for spacecraft and that one had landed recently to collect sulfur and some other chemicals. In October 1972, a telephone engineer was said to have had seen a UFO hovering over the woods before starting to veer off. Now, at the same time, a couple was walking in the area, and they saw a light in the sky, sending down a beam of light into the woods, and then it just kind of flew off. There's a bunch of UFO sightings there. Yeah, no doubt. But that's not all that's there. In the early 1970s, there was a local church warden by the name of David Bennett, And he liked to record nightingales in the area, you know, the birds. But, to his dismay, he found that they could no longer be heard. The woods had gone ominously silent. Men working in the area reported that the wildlife had also seemed to have deserted the woods. Ramblers walking there fell ill with headaches or stomach cramps. Several people have reported being pushed over by an invisible force and even feeling faint here. On one occasion, there were two men... And they were both taken uh, ill at the exact same time. One doubled over in pain and the other clutched his head, yelling that he felt as though his eardrums were being pulled out of his head. The two men, they kind of staggered off about 50 yards before the horrible sensations stopped. Oh, man. Can you imagine being in the woods and then just everything is deathly silent? Like you heard stuff maybe and then all of a sudden it was nothing. That's the way it is at the gates of hell. No way, man. That 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 would be (laughs) terrifying. So then, Geiger counters revealed some slight increases in background radiation, although it's been said that this wouldn't be enough on its own to induce this dramatic kind of response in people. At one point, there were two hikers. They, they ran out of the woods when they said they saw a mist form into the shape of a bear. Meanwhile... Drivers on, a, on the nearby A27, which is a freeway there, said that they felt a strange force on the steering wheel pulling them pulling the steering wheel out of their hands. In August of 1977, there was an investigator, kind of skeptical, name was uh, David Stringer, and he was with the Southern Paranormal Investigation Group. He visited the area with a Geiger counter. He said that while he was there, that he saw a dark shape about 12 feet in height, and a large white disc which shot from behind nearby trees and disappeared into the sky. When it 
finally shot out and was gone, Stringer said he retraced his footsteps and he found an imprint of a foretold creature of whatever that oh. was. There was a, a foretold footprint. Do aliens have four toes? I guess some aliens probably do. He made a sketch of the footprint, and some observers said that it appears that it bears a resemblance to an illustration uh, back from 1863, which is said to show a footprint belonging to the demon Amducius. What the heck? That's what it says. How in the heck do they remember that? Well, I'm sure somebody is just, it was from a book. I'm oh. sure somebody just remembered it and was like, hey, that reminds me of something. And they went back and found it. Well, that look, that sounds really scary. So Clapping Wood has also seen its share of murders. And some of them actually went unsolved for quite some time. The first was in June of 1972. There was a 47-year-old police officer by the name of Peter Goldsmith. And he disappeared while he was out hiking in the area. So Mr. Goldsmith, though, was very fit. He was an uh, ex-Royal Marine over there, commando. And he was a really good hiker, which they call ramblers over there. Ramblers. Ramblers. Mm -hmm. So it would be hard to imagine that it would have been particularly easy to target for anybody as far as him being concerned. You know, you could see with somebody that was a little frail or women or something like that. Right, somebody take advantage of it. But it doesn't really seem like that would be the case with this gentleman. He was last seen alive uh, walking briskly along, and he was carrying a hold-all, which I think is a um, uh, like a backpack. Oh. Or, or something of that nature. His body was found six months later hidden in a patch of thick brambles. The second unsolved death was a uh, retired gentleman by the name of Mr. Leon Foster. He disappeared while he was out on a walk in the summer of 1975. Now, he was found three weeks later by a couple who were searching for a missing horse. That'll come into play a little more later. His body was so decomposed that forensic officers said that the rate of acceleration must be down to unknown factors. So it's like... That sounds gross. It's like it was just decomposing at a rate they had never seen. Oh, my gosh. Death number three is even more inexplicable. The Reverend Harry Neil Snelling was the former vicar of of, uh, Clappin. And he disappeared on Halloween 1978. He was on his way back from a dental appointment. And he decided to walk home in, uh, through the, the, cop, the Clapton Woods there. Mm-hmm. And the area was like thoroughly searched, but his body was not found by any means until August of 1981. So you're looking at four years later. It was found near Whiston Barron on the Downs. That's the place right there. And he had been found by a Canadian tourist who only contacted the police after he left Britain. Why wouldn't you? Why would you do that? Yeah. And all this going for walks is really overrated. Just saying. <laughs> when he did write them, uh, he included Reverend Harry's credit card. So I guess to prove yeah. that that was him. I just don't understand, though, why you wouldn't have. Why, why would you find a body and wait till you leave the country without reporting it? Well, my guess is he probably didn't want to get tied up and everything and then have to stay yeah. there for whatever. But right. you know, it's not like they're going to think you killed the guy. Was well, four years I guess old. he probably figured he's dead and what's another <laughs> couple weeks I get home to tell him. I guess. The fourth murder we're going to talk about was in September 1981, and it was the only female victim of this group by the name of Jillian Matthews. And Jillian was a homeless schizophrenic. Her mm-hmm. body was found six weeks later. The poor woman had been raped and strangled. Oh. 
Now, they did arrest somebody, a gentleman by the name of Jim Withers, and they tried to pin all four murders on him. Ooh. But trying to find information on this person is like searching for, you know, tits on a boar hog, mm. as my dad would say. <laughs> and, you know, if you just heard all that, you would understand that it would be easy to link all of them to one person, but they don't fit the patterns of like a normal serial killer. So they were all a little bit different. Well, yeah. I mean, even though he, they pinned that one on him, if he didn't really actually do the others, that sucks for him. Yeah. The, 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 the Jillian Matthews girl, she's the only one that kind of fit like the pattern Mm -hmm. of something like that. She was lone, vulnerable, uh, a woman. And I don't know. It looked like a, somebody that was a sexual yeah. deviant or opportunist that would do something like that. And he saw his chance and took it. So, um, the other three victims though, were all male. And from what I can kind of gather is it doesn't seem like there was any kind of sexual element involved with any of those. Yeah. So no rape, no anything like that. So I don't know. There's also some very big time gaps when you think about it. Yeah, there is. All of them. It doesn't mean anything because some serial killers are like that. And, but most of them tend to operate in a really tight time frame. So they'll kill eight people in like a three-year period mm-hmm. or something, you know. Anyways, it just feels odd that Jillian's death was kind of um, lumped in with the other three. It just they all seem mm-hmm. so different. So anyway, it's just me. Just as curious as the murders are the animal disappearances that happened in the 1970s. Now, these may be linked to the UFO and the satanic activity. We talked a lot when we did uh, like Skinwalker Ranch and stuff like that. There was animals that were missing and dissected and all that. And a lot mm-hmm. of people assume that had to do with uh, uh, aliens yeah, just doing some kind of work. And a lot of people think that's kind of the same thing here. So this aspect of the case began in April of 1975 when a pet chow owned by Peter Love from Patching was being taken for a walk in the woods by his son, and the dog ran into the trees and vanished. It was never found. A two-year-old collie belonging to John Cornford also disappeared when it ran off into a small uh, little area between two trees known as the Chestnuts, a little area of the woods. That dog was never seen again, and in other cases there was a golden retriever who was found paralyzed and a pug that had an epileptic fit. Aww. Poor babies. So as news of these horrible events kind of became more public, more dog owners came forward to say that their pets had had traumatic experiences back in the area and became strangely aggressive. There was one lady that said her dog um, became very agitated in the area and started running around in circles and foaming at the mouth, and its eyes were kind of bulging with terror. Oh, jeez. All of this is pretty concerning, but the whole Clapton Woods case took a dramatic new turn in 1987 with the publication of a book called The Demonic Connection. And that was by Toyn Newton. If you remember, that was the little boy that said he had that had the Ouija board yeah. out there. And then uh, he wrote that book with Charles Walker and Alan Brown, so they weren't the only one. But the, those authors made the claim that the woods were regularly used by devil-worshipping group called themselves the Friends of Hecate. And they were the ones that were behind the dog killings and the uh, animals and ritual sacrifice. Mm. So that's they're saying that's what happened to all the animals. Never understand that. Now, if you remember when we did um, the Son of Sam episode from back in the 70s with uh, David Berkowitz, 
he claimed that he was part of a satanic group at one point, and they were doing the same thing. They were allegedly killing dogs and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Horses are considered prime targets for devil worshippers. Did you know that? I did not know that. Some believe this is the reason for the mysterious horse disappearances and the mutilations that have been occurring in different parts of Britain for many years now. But why? As usual, I have the answer for you. So in January 2010, there was a newspaper that reported that it's possible that something in the horse's manes could be attributed to witchcraft and that some horses were targeted in that way. And that's why maybe sometimes they were used. It all had to do with something that was in the horse's manes. That is so bizarre. I mean, it's so how would they know that? Well, police said that they were contacted by a warlock, and he was the one that gave them that information. And then you had people, after you heard that, they were bitching and complaining that now the police were wasting their time, um, basically just chasing down witches and devil worshippers all over the Sussex coast. Mm. So... They were trying to figure out, you know, what might have been a logical explanation, yeah. and yet people were criticizing them for that. So needless to say, horses have also gone missing in Clapton Woods because we just talked about that. One man said that he had tied a, his horse to a tree so that he could briefly go off and answer, you know, had to go pee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when he got back from the bushes, that his horse was gone. So he said he searched everywhere. And uh, he even questioned some people that were locals, but the animal was never found, unfortunately. So, Damn, that was quick. Somebody must have just been waiting around the bush or something. <laughs> well, one of the authors of the, of the book that we talked about claims that he was contacted by a spokesman for the cult, and he asked to meet him up in Clapton Woods. And what followed next is, <laughs> it's almost like something you'd see a Monty Python or something, but... Walker cycled uh, to the designated area there, and um, he was talked to by a mysterious voice hiding in the bushes, so they didn't even come out. And they warned him of investigating friends of the, of the Hecate and um, told him pretty much stop. And the strange man in the bushes also warned uh, Charles Walker that the group had friends in high places, and they would tolerate no interference whatsoever. I wouldn't have met nobody in that dang bush. I'm just saying. He also said the the group was going to use the woods for at least another decade before they moved on. So there you go. Other paranormal investigators have kind of questioned why Walker didn't try and, and get a look at the mysterious person in the bushes. And, and in December 2009, Walker popped up on the unexplained forums to say that he hadn't stolen a look because he had found this person to be very threatening in the way that he spoke. And he was alone at the time. And that was all that it mattered. Anyway, the man than I would be <laughs> the friends of the Hecate, um, which I'm assuming they exist. Why wouldn't I? So they didn't get to spend another decade in Clapton Woods after all, because the great storm of October, 1987 made sure that that happened. The great storm uh, did a lot of damage, a large areas of the woodland and uh, the nearby, I think it's called Chanktonberry Chank- ring. But Walker subsequently claimed that the storm had cleansed the area of the group's activities and the Clapton Wood was now free from their antics. That sounds like a fairy tale. Wow. Well, good. Glad to hope it happened, for real. But then he changed his mind. See? (laughs) Walker went on to make even more outlandish claims. 
He said that someone had pulled a gun on him in Worthington High Street and that he had been involved in high-speed car crashes or car chases, I guess I should say. He also said that on another occasion, he had been visiting the church at Clapham when he spotted a medieval barn in the grounds of the manor house, which obviously has uh, historical links to Percy Shelley, who wrote, uh, well, not he didn't, but his wife, Mary Shelley, wrote Frankenstein. Yeah. Percy Shelley was the uh, poet. But he said he remembered the FOH representative telling him that they made other arrangements when the weather was bad. So, bearing this in mind, Walker went to investigate it, and the group had left the barn unlocked. Walker went in to find inside of it decorated as a satanic chapel. He took some pictures of it, but when he left, he was confronted by a rather unpleasant guy wielding a shotgun. And there was a picture of one of the wall paintings depicting what is presumably a bald horn demon on an extensive article written by Mr. Walker on the mysterious Britain and Ireland website under the heading Black Magic in Clapham and Suffolk. So there you go. Sounds interesting. He eventually put on a website that that barn had been occupied by squatters, which puts a whole different slant on the whole demonic wall painting story. Now, in September 2002, in a local paper, Walker reported that he'd been routinely staking out the woods once a month for 30 years in the hope of catching the friends of the Hecate up to their Dennis Wheatley-ish activities. He had done that for 30 years? That's what he says. He said, but he has no luck yet. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I would give up already. <laughs> well, you got to do once more than once a month. I well, mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. That's, well, so, that's craziness. He said that uh, even to this day, he routinely pops up on paranormal forums to talk about the dark happenings in Clapham Woods. He does claim, though, that since 1995, that he has found evidence of ritualistic practices, which were like animal bones and uh, candle ends and stuff, at the site of the old uh, place that was the barn. So he also claims that a friend who works for an animal welfare organization said dog and cats are routinely going missing around the coast area. Hmm. So, of course, these rumors of satanic uh, activity in Britain have been around for the last 50 years and been very prolific when you think about yeah. it. Yeah. Particularly during the swinging 60s and the 70s. It's when Clapton Wood mystery really kicked off. So this era also saw the legend of the Highgate Vampire, which we've done a story mm-hmm. on. And, uh, of course, that had horrific murders with it and was thought to be the inspiration behind the uh, movie Dracula, A.D. 1972. But the Highgate Vampire is a tedious case. Any potential interest in it is negated by the presence of the two main protagonists, which was David Ferrant and Sean Manchester, because a lot of people think that they just... First of all, they were together, and then they weren't together, and then they hated each other, and then mm-hmm. they dogged each other, you know, and they just tried to keep one up in each other. They both wrote books and all that stuff. So it's it's hard for anybody to believe how much really went on in the true Highgate Vampire story. So, so then we got the ruined church of St. Mary, and that's just above the village of Clop Hill and Bedfordshire. And it was also said to have been frequently by devil worshippers back in the uh, 1960s. So the papers were full of all kinds of stories about activities that were going up there. And Janet and Colin Board had found the place thoroughly unnerving when they went to take some pictures of it for their book, Atlas of Magical Britain. And they had walked up there. It was a hot 
thundery evening back in August of 1990, and they found inverted crosses painted on the inside walls of the church, and some of the gravestones had been wrenched apart. I would say that was probably not a very nice atmosphere. It doesn't sound like it's too appealing to me. But, anyways, that was something that went on back in that church. So there supposedly are some plans to turn the church into like an uh, overnight place for walkers so they can stop by or something, I guess, if they just... You mean like... Like a camp type thing, I think. Oh, but they were going to have like uh, somebody there to keep an eye on stuff. Yeah. But it'd be interesting to see if that happens. Meanwhile, the mystery of the Clapton Wood lives on. To this day, visitors report that the woods are unnervingly quiet and there's an absence of bird song, like we talked about earlier. There's not an absence of bird song outside our window. I right know. Now. They're singing so pretty outside. Some occult circles believe that the ley lines in the area are toxic and they can cause and, uh, and attract unbalanced people. So that certainly attracts a new generation of sensation seekers, like the ancient Ram Inn that we did a story on also. It's become a very popular haunt for anyone looking for somewhere different to hang out on their birthdays or um, bachelor parties, stuff like that. In January 2008, a group of friends who went there for their birthday just kind of seemed to be genuine when they said that they had been scared out of their wits late at night by a black faceless beans. Others have posted Blair Witch-style little films that they've made themselves about the area and posted them on YouTube. Many witnesses over the years claim that they've felt being pulled back as they climb over the churchyard. Hmm. And we're still not done with the friends of the Hecate. i got to figure out how to pronounce that. It's too late now. Hecate. In May 2010, someone said on one of the paranormal forums that the friends of Hecate are being supported by several members of the Clapham community. And the poster on that site said that they claimed that the cult had um, permeated our government and can be found not only here in Britain, but France, Portugal, and the United States. This person also claimed to be working on a book and a film to prove these accusations. Hmm. So it's also easy to be cynical, I guess. But um, much as I want to dismiss all this load of David Ick style moonshine, and David Ick was on uh, the Confessionals oh, last was he? week. Yeah, they did a. He's a little too far out for me. This story may have some kind of basis, in fact, but whether it's um, I don't know. True or not, who knows? I guess it's debatable. So the night after I first started reading up on Clapton Woods, I had this um, just image of it being a lot like the Romanian forest that we talked about. That's just the way it seems to come across. Even though the stories weren't the same, that's kind of what I thought it was. But, you know, it's a bunch of cool stories on it. And I'd like to go to Clapton Woods. I think it would be cool. No, thank you. <laughs> you may go by yourself. You always make me go all those places by myself. I know. I'm do- I don't want to, man. But, I don't know. Um, I just, this, this, the Satanism and all that stuff, just, the, everything seems to be going on there. It's when you think about, like, places like Bridgewater Triangle and, 
And like I said, all the force we've talked about, there's always like a thousand things going on from mm-hmm. spirits and um, UFOs and stuff yeah. like that. I just think those places would be cool. Yeah. I mean, I think they would be cool, too. I'd just some, I'd be afraid to ex- really experience something, I guess. <laughs> and I know that sounds dumb. but Cry, baby. I know. Seriously. You're going to experience something in August. Ay, ay, ay. All right, guys. We love you. Thank you so much. That's the bonus episode for this month. Thank you, guys. We love you so much.